Hi, everyone. Welcome to the fifth show of By the Drip. This podcast is about coffee, entrepreneurship, and the people we meet through the amazing story of coffee. I'm your host, David Crosby, founder and CEO of Rosso Coffee Roasters. Today's guest is Meredith Root and Alex Parker. They're the founders of Tactic Nutrition, which specializes in nutrition coaching. In today's podcast, we talk about going from CrossFit game athletes to starting their own business, what nutrition coaching looks like, growing the business with core values at the forefront, which fad diet they wish would just go away, do fitness trackers actually work, and finally, tips to eating healthy. It was a fun conversation with Meredith and Alex, and I hope you enjoy it too. Meredith, Alex, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Maybe if you can introduce yourself so we can put a name to a voice, tell us a little bit about Tactic Nutrition. Yeah, I'll go first. I'm Meredith Root. I am one of the owners of Tactic Nutrition. Live local here in Calgary. I'm actually from North Carolina originally, so I've only been here since 2017. I went to school for engineering, worked in biotech for many years, and then sort of took some time off to dabble in, I guess, professional CrossFit. I don't really believe that CrossFit is a professional sport just yet, but I did that. Was planning on going back into biotech, and then I met Alex and ended up in Calgary. So here I am, and we started a nutrition consulting company back in 2018 that's called Tactic Nutrition, and yeah, the rest is is history. Uh, I'm Alex. I've been in Calgary my entire life except for university. So I studied psychology and then I went to law school and became a lawyer up in Edmonton and absolutely hated being a lawyer. So I quit that pretty much as soon as I became a lawyer. And that was when I started up Tactic Nutrition with Meredith. Yeah, I think that's pretty much sums it up. So you're both professional CrossFitters. We, I guess more, more like X. X professional. <laughs> yeah. We've made a, like a soft exit from the sport we haven't officially announced our retirement. Like everyone, you know, when they retire, they say, oh, I'm retired. We haven't done that, but we have no plans to compete, at least in the near future, and have kind of shifted more towards, I guess, or for me, back into endurance sports. So running predominantly, that's kind of been our focus lately. I mean, we still train, you know, CrossFit style strength and conditioning, because I think it's a really valuable way to, to train and stay healthy and strong, which is important, not only for life, but also for running. But yeah, I guess X semi-professional CrossFit athletes for now. So how do you dabble into a nutrition business and coaching and how does that start? So I think both of us, just with our athletic backgrounds um, and a variety of sports and then primarily CrossFit in the most recent years, you just kind of learn a lot about nutrition and then CrossFit itself is very focused on nutrition. Like there's a lot of fad diets kind of in nutrition, like paleo, the zone diet is a big one. And once you kind of become part of that community, you learn a little bit more. And then as you start competing, because the the training is so like arduous, nutrition becomes so important. Um, so I think a lot of CrossFitters, whether they're elite or not, kind of know a lot about nutrition. And then nutrition coaching was kind of growing in the, within the sport. And so we both have had experience um, with coaching, like having our own coaches and then just learning about the process. And then Meredith started coaching for another company. And then as I was wrapping up my law stuff, I started coaching for that same company. And then we basically were just like, let's just do this on our own. Now we're trying to break out kind of away from the CrossFit. 
community into more of the general population because the general population is who needs the most help with nutrition. So you started back in December 2018? Uh, yeah, September 2018. So about three years in now. So what were those conversations like? You know, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer. How do you go from those two professions to I guess, starting your own business? Yeah, that's, that's actually a good question that I haven't thought about in a, a while. But I think, you know, Alex knew that she was not going to pursue professional law you know, my, my previous industry doesn't really exist up here. I had, when I, when I first moved, I had looked for positions and jobs in biofarm and biotech, and there's just, there isn't an industry. So I knew some, I was going to have to do something else. I didn't know what that something would be. At the time I was coaching just for another, a very similar nutrition company and had garnered a bit of a reputation with that company. People were coming, you know, to work specifically with me Alex had kind of, I guess, interned with that, with the same company. And, you know, we, the two of us together were just kind of, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm going to use the word special, but not in like a egotistical way. Like it's just two very different backgrounds coming together and kind of a very synergistic way. And that's, that's kind of like where tactic began was like, we have unique tools in our toolboxes. We have unique personalities and we garner attention. So why would we want that to be under someone else's umbrella when we can, you know, take it and not only, you know, make all the money ourselves, but also control the trajectory and where it goes long term. And I think, you know, when I think about the direction that we're headed now with our company, that would never have been possible, you know, with the if we had stayed under the umbrella of the company that we used to work for. So. So maybe maybe we can give a baseline to listeners. I sign up. What am I going to expect? What's coaching look like? What's nutrition coaching look like? Yeah, I think nutrition coaching as a an industry is really young. And so there are a number of companies out there who do it. And, and the experience is, is, is different depending on which company you decide to work with. We hold ourselves out as very much a relationship-based nutrition and lifestyle consulting company. So it's, you know, when people think nutrition, they think I'm going to count my calories. You know, maybe they've seen a Noom commercial. Maybe they've been on that. But people's understanding of what it actually takes to change nutrition behavior that tends to be so hard coded in the way that people live their lives. Like it's not just, okay, I need you to eat this. I need you to, you know, hit these calories or whatever. There's a lot more that goes into it. You know, stress, work, relationships, really all of the lifestyle factors have to be considered as part of the whole picture. So when people sign up, I don't know, sometimes, you know, they might expect that we're going to be really friendly and want to learn everything that there is to know about them so that we can help. But I think some people sign up and they aren't uh, maybe necessarily expecting that. So it's a bit of a shock. I think it's usually a good shock because then they start to see, you know, results and they're making changes that maybe they've struggled to make in the past. But, you know, we really strive to build a relationship with people and we're in contact a lot. So other nutrition companies, you might check in with the coach once a week or once a month over email with us. It's, you know, three times a week. So we're just like, we're constantly trying to stay in touch because it helps people stay accountable to themselves, stay consistent, and it helps with that relationship building aspect. So when you started out, were people contacting you because of your CrossFit background and how well you both had done in the CrossFit games? Or were you reaching out to, you know, how did did you build the base? When we were, as Meredith kind of mentioned, when we were back at this other company, a lot of people were requesting that we be their coaches. And when we launched Tactic Nutrition, we basically built out the entire thing. Not that it was, you know, a lot because it's online, 
Um, but we had, we kind of launched our website, launched a separate Instagram account, separate and apart from our personal Instagram accounts. And once we did that, people just started trickling in. And then we have a pretty active Instagram life, which is, I would say the engine to getting more exposure. And then uh, referrals are also a big one. So over time, like over the past few years, it's just been like, keep pushing, keep putting out our message, keep trying to help as many people as we can really like just caring about each and every client has kind of allowed the message to spread that we're different and apart from some of these other you know, nutrition-based companies, or even just like nutrition plans, which as Meredith spoke to is just, it's so much more than just what you put in your mouth. It's how you're feeling, like what kind of emotional stuff are you going through? I mean, nutrition is just, it's very all-encompassing and and we try to touch on all of those bases when we're coaching somebody, so. What kind of questions, like what's the number one question you get from a new client? Is it the same recurring ones? I think people, they there's everybody has a timeline. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who want to lose weight or look a certain way. And, you know, we get a lot of questions like, do you think I can lose 10 pounds in two months? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends on like how well you adhere to the program, which is the number one factor. And also how you respond to the program. It's like you have all the time in the world. There's really no rush. Like, let's do this properly to make sure that when you do lose those 10 pounds, it's sustainable. I would say that's the big one. And then people coming in, it's like, well, can I still have my wine? Can I still have chocolate? Can I still go out for dinner? It's like, of course, it's all very sustainable. You could, you should be able to, you know, include the foods that you like and, and have the social outings that you enjoy while, you know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Do people understand what the commitment is on their end? I would say most people that sign up do understand. And it's just because we, we make it really clear in our messaging where we, we sometimes run into sticking points when we have people who come to us, maybe on referral, who are not familiar with us on Instagram, who aren't following along, who aren't exposed to the things that we have to say, then there's a, there's a little bit of a, I guess, learning curve would be the right word because it's, you know, those people might have expectations that are not necessarily in line, in line with, you know, reality or our experience. So then it's getting that person up to speed with, you know, what the commitment is, what the experience is likely to be. And getting them to buy into a process a process that's probably quite a bit slower than you know what they're led to believe is possible, just based on the way that nutrition and fitness is held out in you know in the media that people are more frequently exposed to. Is there, is there a program like every individual who signs up gets a different program? How how difficult is that to manage? It's difficult because it is one. It's it's individualized. It's one hundred percent personalized to the person. Many of the the deliverables that go out are the same. Like everyone gets a similar looking plan. It's the contents that are different and they vary per person, but you know, it's, it's, it's not the deliverables or the initial startup. That's necessarily the difficult part. It's sort of, you know, sussing out in the first couple of weeks, what the person's response is going to be to the program. Like, you know, is what they're saying, what they're going to do. Are they as committed as as they say they are, a lot of people that sign up with us are, you know, on the surface, it appears that they've made this decision, but in reality, they're still very much in the deciding phase when they sign up. So there's a bit of convincing that goes into it. Yeah. I'd say that's, that's a lot more common than I expected it would be when I started out. The idea of making a change is much more easy to swallow than actually making a change. And I think that only becomes a realization once you're kind of forced into making the change. Some people accept the challenge and they do really well. And some people will fight back a little bit, but hopefully with like openness and communication, you can kind of like meet them where they're at and kind of like, 
incrementally push them to where they, they want to go. They just don't necessarily know if they want to make the effort to go there, if that makes sense. So usually what's the change, like less calories or tracking everything? Yeah. So it's for some people, it's literally like going to the grocery store, like not going out to eat every day. So for some people it's plant, like making two hours to meal prep. Like some people, they just, it, it it's, goes back very to a very basic, like starting point. It's, you know, some people don't exercise. So getting them to just start walking is, is where some people are. Other people, it's actually tracking their food. Like the, you know, the people you always hear like the last 10 pounds are the hardest to lose. We get a lot of people who are like, I want to lean out. That requires a little bit more focus on the clients and the coaches part. So you have to be a little bit more detailed and you know sometimes that takes more effort than people expect to. And it really, it's, it really varies, but I would say the hesitancy is pushing outside of their comfort zone, whether it's, you know, very, at very basic level or more of a more of a detailed level. So growing the business, it's been three years. What has been the biggest struggle? I'd say the biggest struggle is growing it in a way that is in line with our what our core values are. And so the biggest thing for us is there are ways to scale this business up, nutrition coaching or nutrition plans in a way that like I think that the term is maybe like long long term economics. So you lower the maybe the quality of your deliverable. Maybe it's coaching is less frequent. Maybe we start focusing on more templated plans, things like that, things that can scale kind of infinitely. And so even a lower cost option delivered to thousands and thousands of people is going to be more economically beneficial than a really high quality product that can't necessarily be scaled up. So we've, we kind of found out, you know, we had conversations with other business owners and people that wanted to partner and wanted to use our brand to do just that, to generate a lower cost option that people would be able to buy. And it was all making money. Right. And so we decided early on that that just wasn't the way that we wanted to grow. And so for us, you know, it's the difficult thing has been growing our team and bringing people on that we feel like can deliver the same quality that we're looking for, you know, and, and add to our team. So add knowledge, add experience, add diversity so that when when people come to us and they they sign up with a coach, we can actually, you know, they're not just getting me or they're not just getting Alex. We can say they're going to be a better fit with Lindsay or this person sounds like they would you know, work really well with Jill. And it's, it's allowed us to actually like kind of tailor the program even more than we were able to originally, but that's, that's taken a lot of time and it's required us to be okay with a slower growth model. But what we believe is a a much higher quality product and more sustainable long-term. How many people would you each individually coach? That number used to be a lot higher than it is now. And so that's, again, and this was kind of the original, the sticking point is we were growing and we were like, we are getting very close to a, like a waitlist scenario because we just can't take any more people on, you know, and our work days were 10 to 12 hours. And that was just, is not sustainable from a personal level because it takes a lot of time to talk with people and get to know them. And so we've, as we've brought people on to help us, we've kind of, we've, we've reduced that number by probably 30%. And that's been great because it's allowed us to really focus on the other aspects of the business. So you know, marketing, higher quality deliverables, social media, YouTube, podcasts, things like that to get our message out even more. So cast a wider net. And then once we have people who are interested in working with us, we have a more diverse team that we can assign them to. How, how big is your team right now? How many people do we have? I think including us, there are seven coaches. So we have yeah five others. And then we also have somebody who does personalized workout programming as well that we refer people to. Now, some people come to us and they 
they've got their nutrition somewhat dialed in and we're helping them with that. But what they're missing is, you know, the other piece of the puzzle, which is the fitness component. You know, people want to look jacked for lack of better word, and they want to be fit, but they're you know, only on the elliptical 30 minutes a day. And it's like, okay, you're going to need, you're going to need a little bit more and maybe they don't know where to start. So, you know, they have to start incorporating the other piece of the puzzle. Where, where do you see the future tactic in the next, say five years then? That's the question. So I think our core product is going to continue to be one-on-one coaching. The things that interest me from a business standpoint would be developing a formalized mentorship program. That's a question that we get a lot. Nutrition and life, lifestyle coaching has just become this kind of booming industry, I think, because so many people see the benefit of it. It, it can work as a sort of a handshake between you know medical doctors and people who need to make these lifestyle and health changes but aren't quite sure how. And so we get a lot of people who come to us looking for mentorship and we just don't have that program in place. You know, other educational components, maybe putting together some courses that people can take and then building, like I'm a a big brand person. I really like, you know, brands that are sleek and they look good. It's why I really like Rosso. Um, I'm just like drawn to brands that are very iconic. And so like ultimately I want, and we're already starting to do this a little bit, but I want Tactic to stand out as not only, you know, a, a coaching company, but also a brand that people are really stoked to you know, wear on a t-shirt or, you know, buy our, your guys's Instagram is awesome. The, the content on it. And I see it shared like within groups I'm in quite a bit and yeah, yeah you, you do a great job there. Yeah. Thank you. We, that was a change we made a couple years ago, just from a visual standpoint, it took some tinkering to get it to where it is now, but it's very consistent, which I like, like visually, it's just, it's always kind of the same, even though the message is different. And I think that kind of consistency really sticks with people. Like I'm just, I'm interested in growing the, the visual side of the brand quite a bit in conjunction and alongside the actual coaching side of the brand. What do you two eat on a daily basis? What's like breakfast look like, a lunch, a dinner? I mean, I eat the same breakfast every day and I have for a long time. Meredith does the same, but they're so different, the breakfast. So I eat, I eat like a big bowl of oatmeal with blueberries and honey. And then I have chicken sausage, like that I just buy. It's a Calgary based company. Spalumbos. Spalumbos. It's pretty good. And then uh, for lunch, I usually have a sandwich or like leftovers from dinner, like meat and rice and vegetables. It's pretty plain. For dinner, we go, we're like super, super basic. So we order a ton of like frozen meat. And then at the, at the beginning of the week or even like the day of, we're like, what do we want to barbecue tonight? And we always have like plenty of vegetables. So we just pick a vegetable to steam or put on the barbecue. And then we have like rice or pasta as our carb or potatoes. This is like very like meat, veggie, carb or starch. Yeah. It's a pretty boring uh, way to eat. I love, I like my breakfast the most. That's my favorite meal of the day. Yeah. I do usually a bagel with like a Wayne's bagel with, you know, butter and jam, a couple eggs, yogurt, stuff like that. Very, I call it utilitarian eating for the rest of the day. <laughs> so lunch is pretty basic. Um, you know, we'll go out to eat maybe once a week. We do like sushi or something. I'm not, I've never been a big eater as far as like, I don't, I, I like nice food. I like going to nice restaurants. I like the experience of that, but it's not something that I need to do frequently. And it's almost for me, it, it becomes more enjoyable when I don't do it frequently because it's, you know, it's just, it, it feels extra special compared to, you know, a normal day of eating. So, and it's, it's kind of like, we use the analogy of saving money a lot to describe the way that we eat and the way that we think people, you know, even a shift towards our style of eating would benefit people. And it's like, you know, you save money and you're frugal 
so that when you want to go on a really nice vacation, you can, you don't have to feel like you're strapped for it. People who eat out, you know, a lot of the time, and we, we know this because, because people tell us what their feelings are with food. It's people that seem to eat out a lot, have a lot of guilt when they do eat out. So it's like, you're going to this nice restaurant. You can't even enjoy it, which is crazy to me because why go to a, you know, why don't go to a restaurant that's going to cost you $200 a head if you're going to sit there and fret about what's on the plate. What, what fad diet, if you could just eliminate today, what would it be? You talked about zone. We got, I don't know if it's a fad, but intermittent fasting seems to really be big in the media right now. We had keto a couple of years ago. I would say the two most popular ones that I just want to put to rest. Well, the biggest one is keto. So it's like, why are you restricting yourself? Like carbs are amazing. They're great for performance. You're just going to feel better. It's that people can't control themselves around carbs. So you put a limit on them and you'll lose weight. You didn't lose weight because you're not eating carbs. You lost weight because you're not eating as much food. Just learn to live with the foods that you like in moderation. And it's easier said than done, of course, but intermittent fasting, it's fine. It's, it's, it's again, it's a shortcut. It's, it's limiting food intake by, you know, reducing the window of eating. The problem with that is, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's studies that say that like eating breakfast can actually help reduce intake during the rest of the day and eating a breakfast high in protein. And so when you're skipping breakfast and then you're, you know, later in the day, you're just like scarfing down whatever you want. It kind of defeats the purpose and it's not as good for performance, especially if you work out in the morning and it's not as good for body comp either. The funny thing about intermittent fasting, I think people just have given a label to the fact that they don't want to eat breakfast. So it's like, I'm an intermittent faster. And it's like, well, no, you're not. You just, you don't eat to lunch because you don't either. You don't want to eat breakfast. You don't like eating in the morning or you don't have anything prepared, which is another really common issue. It's like this classic scenario of people, they only hear what they want. So the thing that's funny about intermittent fasting, there's actually quite a bit of data and like quite a bit of research that has been done on prolonged fasting and intermittent fasting, which in the scientific community is called time-restricted eating. All of the positive research around time-restricted eating on a 24-hour clock is done in an early time restricted window, which means that, you know, whereas it's popular for intermittent fasters to start eating at noon and maybe stop eating at 7 p.m., what the research actually shows is that to, you know, to, to get the most out of that style of eating, you would actually start eating at maybe 7 or 8 a.m. and stop eating at 4 p.m. But that doesn't really fit with the way that people live their lives and social eating behaviors and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's kind of that that conversation or that part of the conversation is ignored. People just say, well, I'm going to do a late time restricted window when there's really no data at all that shows that that's beneficial whatsoever. And then the people who do think it's beneficial for, you know, cell regeneration or, you know, autophagy, they're also the ones who are eating donuts during their eating window. So Mm -hmm. unless your diet is pretty well dialed in, you're not going to reap those other benefits anyways. Any, any other diets we need to blow up right now? (laughs) Anything like it's anything that's restricted, anything that's a diet, anything that's yeah. Anything that's been labeled a diet. I mean, originally diet is, is it, it's, it's what you eat. That's what the definition of a diet is. People in our society have turned the word diet into something that is inherently restrictive, which like none of us should be restricting ourselves. Like, yeah, you don't want to, you know, maybe restrict yourself to not eating all 12 cookies on a cookie sheet, but should you never bake cookies and never enjoy a cookie? No. How do you manage? I'm all or nothing, which uh, yeah, I'm embarrassed to say in front of you too, yeah. but I'm like the cookie, I'll eat the whole cookie sheet or I don't touch cookies for months. I'd say that's very common. How, how, do, how do I manage that? You know, you, a lot of people hear about like 80, 20 approach, and that's kind of what, what we adhere to. 80% of your food is high quality 20% is maybe a little bit lower quality, the treats that you like. 
I think after a, a significant period of time of maybe changing your environment. So don't bake t- a dozen cookies. Like don't, don't open up the possibility to allow yourself that, you know, if you have a problem with tortilla chips, which is Meredith's downfall, don't keep a bag of tortilla chips in the house. It's little things like that. And then with our clients, like if somebody's going to say a potluck, which generally is a really, you know, problematic type of meal for people who struggle with control around eating, developing like a really good plan with them going in and building their confidence, keeping them accountable to that. You know, they come out at the other end and they're like, Alex, all I had was one plate. It had mostly vegetables. I, you know, I did have a cookie at the end, but I didn't go back for seconds. I didn't stand near the table and pick. And then that's just like, that's under your belt. That's an experience where you're gaining confidence that you have control in those scenarios. Like you can stop like, and the next day you wake up and you feel really proud of yourself and you feel good and you can work out and you're not bloated and all those other negative things that, you know, can sometimes happen from overeating. So it's like, there's a variety of strategies, but I would say it's, it's all about like, you know, acknowledging like the mindset all or nothing is extremely common. How do we change in society? Our food sometimes is seen so negatively, like we're packing on calories or, and change it to more positivity. Yeah, our big thing I think is is focusing on food inclusion and not food exclusion. So this is a big problem in the nutrition industry with, you know, and, and not like you can go back and, and look at keto, keto, for example, like diets and nutrition protocols, protocols often focus on the foods that should be excluded from the diet without focusing or talking at all about the foods that should be included. So our kind of, you know, our approach is we almost never talk about foods that that a person shouldn't eat. We don't want anyone feeling like things or foods are not on the table. Like they're, you know, the things that are off limits. Instead, we, we focus on, you know, these are the things we want you to include a little bit more of like more fruit, more vegetables, lean protein, things that when you start to eat them in significant qualities, they are in significant quantities you know, they're volumetric, they're filling, and they're just, they're going to sort of take away the urge to maybe eat lower quality foods in abundance. So if you eat, like if you get a person who doesn't eat fruits or vegetables and eats a low protein diet to start eating, you know, a fruit or a vegetable with every meal, and then, you know, 120 to 150 grams of protein, like they're going to be too full to eat anything else. And so in that way, we, we have excluded foods from the diet, but without explicitly excluding foods from the diet. Is lack of protein a, a big issue for that's people? The, I would say that's our number one issue with people. Yeah. And that's that's systemic. And that one is so big because it has such a, a huge impact on the way that you feel during the day, lean muscle mass growth and retention for people who exercise. And then once we start aging, like once you once you when you look at the aging population, protein intake is is non-existent. And so as you age, you know, the only real power you have over your metabolism and your health is your retention of lean body mass. And so we want, you know, in our older population, almost more than our younger population to really emphasize protein intake across the day. Fitness trackers. Whoop. We got an Apple watch. We got the aura ring. There's, you know, dozens upon dozens. What, what are your guys' thoughts on? I, I know you got something to say. (laughs) I love data as much as the next person. I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm a scientist. My life for many years was numbers and data, and I, I love it. There's a real danger in collecting data without asking a question first, because then you create the scenario where you have, you know, HRV data from a root, from a whoop, which I think before whoop, people didn't 
even know what HRV was, but it's, you know, it's one of their, their number one metrics for recovery day to day. And so you have all this data and you're looking at this data and you're, you're thinking to yourself, okay, what problem can I create for myself? My HRV is all over the place. That must mean this, that must mean this. So you create scenarios where you might feel perfectly fine, but you wake up and you have a, you know, a yellow or a red score on your whoop. And all of a sudden that's a problem. And so you begin to live into these problems just because, um, you know, your wearable is telling you that you should feel a certain way. It's a, a brilliant business strategy because there's this entire industry that now is built on collecting user data and then selling that data back to the person. It's your data. You could you could record that information in a different way that doesn't cost you any money. It's free to take your heart rate every morning, but people don't want to do that because it's difficult. So I, I always take Whoop data and Garmin data and Fitbit data with a grain of salt. If someone is tracking it for a very explicit purpose, then I will listen to what they have to say about it. But if someone just sends me their, you know, their recovery data from a whoop, I'm going to ask the question, well, how do you feel today? And if they say, well, I actually feel pretty good. And I'm like, well, let's focus on that. And let's not focus on the fact that you have a yellow score on your whoop for three or four days in a row. Alex, I know you got some, come on. I just find a lot of people, they have that information, but they're not act like if you, if so, if you have a whoop to track sleep, if it, if that information forces you to change your habits, great. Like if you're, if you're showing that you're sleeping five hours a night and you're like, I want to see that number on my whoop at eight hours and you change all of these sleeping habits, you get to bed earlier, you know, you make your sleeping environment better. Great. Then the whoop is, is doing good. If you're looking at like Meredith said, if you're looking at your, your watch every morning and saying, Oh, I only slept five and a half hours tonight. Well, I'm going to feel like crap today then what's the point? Like you're just, and then it's just, you're, you're going into the day already probably feeling like crap because you only slept five and a half hours, but now you have something, you know, like staring you at the face being like, yeah, you're going to feel like crap today. So have fun. I think most people are the latter. Yeah. And we live in this world of like, we live in a world now where you can optimize almost anything. Right. Like we live in an, in an optimization obsessed culture. But the problem with, with that, there are, there are many things where that are worth spending some time improving on. But as soon as you know, as soon as you're like, well, I'm going to optimize my sleep and you can, you can get so obsessed with that, that now your rest and recovery has become work. And so that detracts from the positive effects of rest and recovery. If every morning you get up and even after a really great night of sleep, you, you have to look at your sleep data to confirm that. Well, now you're adding stress because what if it says a number you aren't okay with? And the same thing goes for, you know, social media. If you can't eat a, a meal without taking a picture and putting it on Instagram, well now like eating has become work. Like we, we're, we're in this sort of situation where everything that we do can become work if we don't take a step back and consider why we are trying to make some of the changes we're trying to make. How is sleep and food correlated? Massively correlated. Strongly. <laughs> it's um, a bit of a chicken and the egg situation because Food intake can affect sleep quality. We see people who undereat calories, undereat carbohydrates, mistime their food around their workouts. They experience, you know, less sleep, less deep sleep. They're more restless. But at the same time, when you don't sleep, usually your your hunger hormones are jacked up. Your cortisol is going to be elevated. You're going to be more likely to make poor food decisions because that's your body is a, in a sort of a survival mode and it's going to go for, you know, what's most palatable, what's highest in calorie, what is going to help me to survive. And so then you get into sort of a vicious cycle where you're not sleeping well. So you're eating poor quality food, you're eating poor quality food. So you're not sleeping well. We think the first line of attack there is obviously to, to try to fix nutrition a little bit, eat at consistent time of days, which helps with not only calorie intake, but also 
cortisol production, which ties into melatonin production. And that sort of writes itself with sleep. And once we have someone who's eating regularly and in the right amounts, then you can start to use sleep as a monitoring tool for, okay, do we need to make small changes during the day with nutrition? Like, are we seeing these specific sleep patterns? And if so, like, okay, let's increase calorie intake from carbs. Let's try to put carbs, you know, after a workout, there are start, there are things that you can do, but it's really hard to use sleep as a tool when nutrition is all over the place. So what would a perfect day look like? You wake up at seven, you eat breakfast at eight, you work out at nine. Like what would that look like? I would, so it doesn't really matter when you wake up. I'm, you know, science tells us to kind of go based on the sun. So if you wake up around when the sun rises and then you go, your can be helpful to go outside and get sunlight in your eyes. And that just helps with your circadian rhythm. Uh, you get it, you get outside and it, it helps with hormones like serotonin and dopamine. Um, those like happy hormones get outside for 10 minutes. Even like walking can really help 20 minute walk in the morning is great. And then maybe you get to your day, eat breakfast relatively soon after have a cup of coffee. And then it's it's really like eating every three or four hours. Some people, some people like eating more frequently with smaller meals. Some people like eating bigger meals less frequently. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. The one thing we usually suggest is like eating consistently throughout the day is important and then spacing out your protein. So you don't want to be just like gorging yourself on protein at nighttime, trying to get it all in. Like you don't need to eat four chicken breasts in a sitting, like space that all out. Has the research changed? I remember growing up, it was always like eat eat small meals a day to like have your metabolism high. Is that just bullshit or it's so person dependent yeah it's i'm not gonna say there's not any research there i'm sure that there is but there's also research that shows three meals is fine really like the recommendation now i think is between three and six per day and it's it's whatever you're going to be able to do consistently do say like some people some people like working out in the afternoon i think studies have shown that your hormonal environment is best for working out early afternoon like your cortisol levels. But, you know, a lot of people can't work out early afternoon because a lot of people have day jobs. If somebody, if it's more likely that you're going to get your workout in in the morning, do it in the morning. If you prefer to wait till after and you feel better in the afternoon or in the evening, wait till the evening. I think wherever you feel your best and it works with your schedule that you're going to get it in is when you work out. Um, We never tell people when to work out. It's really, it's like, we'll talk to them and try to figure out the best timing, but there's, it really like the best, the best option is what is the best option for that specific person. And then going to bed at the same time every night, again, like kind of when the sun goes down, keeping lights low, stay off your screens, stress levels low. So don't, don't be checking your phone for emails before bed, work emails, especially. An yeah. alarm to wake up to no alarm. I think ideally, like if you, <laughs> if you can wake up with no alarm, that's perfect. I would say that's ideal. We don't have that flexibility in our lives. So, but I will say like, I'm, when the alarm goes off, I'm usually like kind of awake already. I know that they make these alarms that, I mean, it gets really dark and Okay, I had one of those <laughs> Yeah, when I lived up in Alaska. It, it mimics the sunlight. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. actually a really great. Um, we, we have one. Yeah. Th- those are I great. I hated it because you couldn't snooze it. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden it's like the sun is in your room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the equivalent of your mom, like pulling your covers off. (laughs) Exactly. So rude. By the Drip is sponsored by Rosso Coffee Roasters. You can check out the Home Coffee Plan subscription on the website, rosocoffeeroasters.com. This week's subscription coffee is from Myanmar. It's a group of small producers in the village of Titamung, and it's been processed by Behind the Leaf. The coffee is a natural processed red katwai. And Tita Mung, to me, is loaded with rich, low tones. This coffee is cozy and comfortable, and I'm just loving it. 
Enjoy sipping on some Tita Mung while listening to my chat with Meredith and Alex from Tactic Nutrition. So if someone's on the run, can't make any food at home, what's like a quick stop that they could hit that's like healthy? I don't know, going to hit the macros? I've done, okay, this is a great question because we we work with a lot. And like, you know, the last two years, a lot of people haven't been traveling for obvious reasons, but we do work with a lot of salespeople, things who travel, people who travel for work and stuff. You can almost always get a macro-friendly meal out. And I know this because I've done it. Like I've been in a situation where my only option is McDonald's for breakfast. And it's like, all right, McDonald's it is. And so, you know, I get a couple of egg McMuffins with nothing on them. And then I, I ditch, you know, some of the English muffin or whatever. And then I have like three egg patties from McDonald's. Okay. Yeah. You know, I usually get like they, the McDonald's down South have like grits, which are just very plain cornmeal. So you usually get some of those and then like a, a coffee. And so then you have McDonald's meal that is actually like surprisingly low in fat has 30 to 40 grams carbohydrates and 25 to 30 grams of protein. You just have to sort of be willing to dissect some of the menu options. So maybe, maybe we could talk about macros a little bit. You know, we have a lot of like coffee professionals that listen and they might not know yeah. what those are. Maybe you could break them down and what an average person would kind of need. So I think most people are familiar with the concept of calories, which is just, it's a number, I mean, all food that we eat has calories and it just describes the amount of energy that goes into our body when we eat it. So calories come from macronutrients. So every food has a certain amount of protein, carbohydrates, and or fat. And so those are the the three major macronutrients. Alcohol is technically a fourth one, but we don't really include that in the conversation because it's not an, a value added macronutrient and doesn't occur really naturally in very many foods. So protein, carbohydrates, fat um, are what contribute to calories. Protein and carbohydrates have four calories per gram. Fat has about double at nine calories per gram. So when we look at where do most people get their calories during the day, I assume, unless demonstrated otherwise, that most people get the majority of their calories from fat. And that's especially if people eat out because it's just in everything. I think a lot of people make the assumption that you get more calories from carbohydrates, but in the Western diet and in restaurant fast food diet, most calories come from fat. So when we're talking about macronutrients and the, the value of tracking those for nutrition, all it does is it further quantifies the food that you eat. So instead of saying, we know an egg McMuffin has 250 grams or 250 calories, you can say, not only do we know it has 250 calories, we know it has you know 20 grams of protein, 30 grams of carbs, and 20 grams of fat or something like that. And so we can, we can break that out for a day and you, we'll just use the recommended daily intake of... 2000 calories, which I think is the current RDI for females. The men the might be- The average, the average adult. It's the average 20, adult. 20, sorry, 2000 to 2200, I think. Yeah. So 2000 calories per day. We would look like for a, a macronutrient breakdown of a, like around 200 calories would be, or 2000 calories would be probably 150 grams of protein, 70 grams of fat and 200 grams of carbohydrates. It's like a 30, 30, 40 is pretty standard. 30, 30, 40%. So Mm -hmm. 30 protein, 30 fat, 40 carbs. So if I have a chicken breast, that's how many grams of protein? A normal size chicken breast is around 20 grams of protein. And how about, what's a carb? I don't know. I have a cup of rice. A piece of bread, a cup of rice is about 40. A piece of bread is between 20 and 30. Like a hundred, a hundred calories, like a slice of bread would be 25 grams of carbs at four calories per gram. 
So everything you eat in a day contributes to that. And I always like to make the analogy, like tracking macros is a bit like playing Tetris. You kind of have to see, okay, these are the foods that I eat on a regular basis. And then how do they fit in together to get the the puzzle solved in the way that I want the puzzle solved? You know, and, and we eat a lot of the same things every day. And that's very simply like we play the same game of Tetris every day. And so it's really easy for us to win that game because we know where all the pieces go. We know the order that they're going to come down in. We know how to twist them to get them to fit where they need to fit. That's an awesome analogy. Yeah. If someone is, is if they eat out, if they insist on having different meals every day, you can make that work, but you just have to realize you have to play a different game of Tetris every single day. So it's going to take more time, more effort, more energy, which, um, you know, is some people are okay with doing that, and, and but mostly people get very tired of playing that game. And so then you say, oh, I'm not going to play that game anymore. And now you're kind of back to square one with nutrition. A, a lot of it is, um, it's a very, it's a learning experience for a lot of people who come to us and they have no prior knowledge of this stuff. And it's like simply just tracking in um, the app, MyFitnessPal, and learning what is in certain foods, how many calories are in certain foods. Like even for me, if you're familiar with like a Tim Hortons Timbit, you know, it's it's literally two bites, 70 calories, which is you have five Timbits and you're talking- 350 calories. 350 calories. Yes. Yeah. Meredith yeah. knows I'm bad at math. So she I jumped in there. <laughs> I saw it on your but face. But that's what, you know, 350 calories can be equivalent to one sandwich depending on what you put in that sandwich, which is a meal for some people. And they're going to, you know, that the protein content is much higher in a sandwich, which are, is going to keep you fuller. And, you know, there's not as much sugar and it just, there's more nutrients and that, that sort of thing. Another example, just to kind of show what the benefits of using macros and kind of like educating yourself on this stuff is people think a steak is very high in protein, which it is. You have like, I don't know, a T-bone steak, and call it a ribeye. A ribeye, a ribeye steak. So you say you have 40, 40 grams of protein in that. It's a pretty big steak. You probably have also 40 grams of at fat. At least 40 grams of fat. If it's cooked at a restaurant and I think basted in butter, is that yeah, what they, that's they what do? They call it. Then you have probably more fat because butter is pure fat. So you're you're looking at a steak being a lot of calories, whatever the math is on that. I love like I love I love steak. I love ribeyes and I love living a in a thousand calories in a steak almost. Yeah. And it's very easy to eat. Which that. is half of what the daily recommended intake is for humans. So I mean that's a steak. You're not even looking at some of the other foods out there, like um, just as an example, I'm pretty sure like a pack of Doritos, or I was always surprised by uh, hickory sticks, those little bags of hickory sticks. Th that bag is like 250 calories. And really it's like half a cup of hickory sticks, but no one knows it, it's not very much food. It doesn't really fill you up, but that's why there's a, an obesity ep epidemic. Not to get too negative here. But it's I, just like it's a learning thing. Yeah, I think so many people don't have that relationship with food of the understanding of what's going into it, how it's being cooked. And, you know, when we're on the road and we eat out a lot, I try to assess out like, okay, what's the healthiest thing on the menu? But like you're saying, you could, I always try to get like salmon because it usually comes with vegetables, but you don't know how that, like that salmon's probably cooked in butter and God knows what else. And, all of a sudden it's like a 1300 calorie meal that I'm thinking is 500 calories. Yeah. Salads are really bad too. Not bad, high calorie. We don't like to label foods as bad and good, but you order, a so let's say Earl's, you get a salad. They have like the, the Mexican salad. I don't know what it's called. And it has lettuce and chicken. You're like, that's pretty healthy. I think I'll get that. And what you don't under, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is, is they get just drenched in dressing, which is oil, high calorie it, it has cheese, which is another one. 
might probably has some nuts in it. So it just, it adds up and there's nothing wrong with a salad. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those specific foods. It's just the amount of it. And, you know, maybe somebody's sitting here listening to this, like, oh, well, you're ruining all the foods that I like. Well, knowledge is power. We're not saying you can't have a Timbit. It's just like maybe knowing that five Timbits is 350 calories, you'll, you know, be able to figure out the rest of your day. It just, it's, it's good to, to know this stuff. You know, since you asked about eating while traveling, most restaurants will cook off of the menu. So mm-hmm. if you just like, I mean, there's definitely a time and a place to go out to a nice restaurant and not worry about it. But if you're just, if you're on a four or five day work trip and you know that every meal is going to be out, like you have to have some utility meals in there. So if you just go in and you say, look, like, can you do me a, like a grilled chicken breast, you know, a rice, a potato, whatever they have on the menu and, you know, a vegetable not cooked in butter, 100%, they will probably do that for you. So it's just a matter of like being that person, I guess which I've always been okay with. Do you think we should be teaching nutrition in school? That's a good question. Wasn't it just added to the curriculum in Alberta? I think. Yeah. And there was a bit of an uproar. Yeah. I think that, I think that we should, it has to be taught very delicately. It's like, I don't think it's that different from something like sex ed. It's like, it's, it's important for like health and you need to teach it somewhere, but there's also the risk of like the prevalence of eating disorders is, is, is rising. Food is becoming more of a complicated topic to discuss just as adults. Yeah. But I don't so, think you should be able to get into adulthood and not know what a calorie is. Yeah. Or which is common. Yeah, it is tricky, but uh, you know, it's when you start talking about eating disorders and prevalence in society, you have to also look at, well, where does that come from and why is it likely to come from school and curriculum or is it likely to be handed down from parents like it's more likely to come from the parents so you have to wonder like if you arm children with the right information delivered in the right way from the right people in school like i think that's a a good thing ultimately because they they may they might not be getting that information from from their parents or the adults in their lives do you have anyone who's signed up and maybe has an eating disorder and what kind of help if someone's listening and and has an issue or that kind of relationship with food is there some we, tips or we try to stay in our lane. Like a lot, like I said, there's a lot of people who have a complicated relationship with food. It's, it's very, very common. It's a little bit more common in certain groups of people, like older women who kind of gr- grew up in the weight watchers. What's the Atkins diet kind of thing where carb very, there's fear of carbs yet. They, you know, alcohol is okay. Like there's just, there's a, they do tend to define foods as good and bad. People may binge eat that sort of thing, but that's usually a result of what Meredith said, like, you know, restriction and then going overboard because you're so hungry. You know, when foods are bad, you know, you tend to eat them in large amounts because it's like, I just got to get it all in now and then I won't, you know, need it again. If somebody comes to us and they have somewhat diagnosable eating disorder, we almost always recommend that they see a therapist. O- oftentimes, like prescribing macros or calories and like tracking food can just make the problem worse. Sometimes we take an approach that doesn't involve macros and calories and food tracking, and it's more just like, let's get you eating three meals a day. Let's get you eating enough. Let's have you focus on how you're feeling, talking about things, talking about your relationship with food. So there's a line that can be crossed towards like a a diagnosable eating disorder where we usually recommend somebody see somebody that be able to help them in a bit of a different way. Is it better to increase exercise or decrease calories? That's a good question. So there's actually a third component there and it's non-exercise activity. So when we're looking to create, this is making the assumption that the person's goal is to lose weight and that they have weight to lose, which is another conversation. But assuming that that they have weight to lose and they're safe to lose it, exercise is a really terrible way to create a calorie deficit. Number one, because you don't actually burn as many calories as you think you burn. 
it usually results in a reduction in non-exercise activity like the rest of the day. So people tend to overcompensate. So you do a really hard CrossFit workout. You're more likely to spend more time sitting that day, less likely to take the stairs, more likely to park close as close as possible to, you know, your office. So you see that sort of reduction happen. Exercise actually when like people who are who exercise routinely and a lot, it makes them more metabolically efficient. So the more you exercise, the less the fewer calories you expend at rest. So that's just a neat sort of physiological process that happens. We also don't like the flip side is we don't necessarily want to slash calories down, you know, a 500 calorie deficit a day is significant. That's something that you're going to notice not only in the the amount that you're eating, but you're more likely to experience hunger signals. And we're looking at, okay, you know, we want to create a calorie deficit during the day. I want someone to exercise no more than they would normally exercise. So fix that. Then we want to maybe drop calories a little bit, 250 to 300 calories a day is usually reasonable and not likely to be super noticeable from a hunger or a volume food volume standpoint. And then the rest of it, I want to come from non-exercise activity. So if a person sits at an office all day, like, you know, go for a walk once every 90 minutes for 10 minutes, maybe, you know, walk in the morning, walk in the evening, just generally try to be a little bit more active during the day, but not by adding in exercise. So that creates that kind of 500 calorie per day deficit ish, you're in that ballpark without, you know, going crazy on extra exercise or, you know, just not eating anything. How about uh, we see in the media superfoods? Is there such a thing? There are, there's a, a sm- there's a small number of superfoods. Uh, they're not sexy. One of them is garlic. Okay, yeah. um, <laughs> another superfood coffee is actually, it's a considered it's on the list. Coffee is really, really high in antioxidants. Red wine is also on that list because of the reverse atrol, the, the, antioxidant that's on there that has some um, specific like anti-cancer properties that's been lab proven everything else like acai not a superfood spirulina not only not a superfood but also nasty um <laughs> i'm just imagining like an acai bowl just like with tons honey, of granola. peanut butter yeah. granola like i mean to be honest like the number one superfood is and like I'm, I'm a broken record on this is protein. It's lean protein. Like that's that's your number one superfood. It's boring. It's chicken breast. It's white fish. It's like sirloin steak. But it's it's that's number one. If you you don't need to be worrying about eating raw garlic or red wine or coffee or spirulina if your protein intake is you know petite. So in the other two categories, what would it be for carbs? For superfoods? Yeah, or just like the best of the best, maybe yeah. not superfood. I think for most people who are just looking for general health, weight maintenance, that kind of thing, complex carbohydrates. So you don't need to say, you don't need to worry about fruit. A lot of people worry about fruit and they shouldn't. Worry about fruit being too high in sugar. Yeah, they say, well, I can't eat. But they'll eat a donut. <laughs> grapes, grapes are too high in sugar. Grapes got a really bad. Carrots bad. are high on the glycemic index. Yeah. I love that one. So like complex carbs would be carbohydrates from fruit, vegetables, whole grains. Like really, we we want carbs to be as minimally processed as possible for the most part. That doesn't mean that you can't have pasta or bagels. It just means most of what you you eat should be unprocessed. And that's going to ensure that the, the water content is high, the fiber content is high, which is going to help control blood sugar and slow down digestion. It really comes down to a, a like a food volume and micronutrient standpoint for carbohydrates. For fat. Yeah, plant fat over animal fat if you can. Coconut, nut butters. Fat, you always have to be a little careful with because they are so calorically dense. Like you always hear like 
Almonds are a great snack. Almonds aren't really a great snack because you can get, you can consume a lot of almonds in a very small period of time, which can equate to a lot of calories. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with an almond. There is something wrong with eating too many calories if it's causing you to be overweight and unhealthy. So like trail mix can be dangerous. You can eat just, you can eat a lot of that without having any idea of how much you're actually consuming. How about our vegetarian and vegan friends? Cause that's, that's gotta be so difficult to get the protein without eating a lot of nuts. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually really partial to vegetarian diets. I'm not vegetarian, but if I was going to do a specific, it would be that one, like a plant-based diet. And the reason is you get plant-based eaters and vegetarians, their carbon take is extremely high, which I think is mostly a good thing as long as it's relatively unrefined fat intake is low. Also a good thing from a protein standpoint, it's just a little bit trickier because you're, you obviously don't have access to meat and you know, some vegetarians are like lacto ovo. So they'll do eggs and dairy. Some not vegans obviously are no animal products whatsoever. So usually it's it's impossible for a vegetarian or vegan to eat a low carb diet because all of your protein is going to come from things that also contain carbohydrates like beans, things like that. We've worked with a number of vegans and vegetarians and I think is as long as they have a good idea of where protein comes from. So, you know, lentils are a really good option, garbanzo beans. Soy gets a bad rap, but it's really not that bad. Yeah, most people can actually eat enough soy where it becomes problematic from a hormonal standpoint. So soy is great. It's actually one of the, the most complete proteins that a vegetarian can eat from an amino acid standpoint. There's a lot of like, and we don't recommend food replacement products very frequently, but protein powders can come in handy. So there's a variety of vegan proteins out there mm -hmm. that are really good as well. Yeah. The one thing I recommend that vegans and vegetarians do more frequently than omnivores would be just to get blood work done to make sure you're not showing any deficiencies in like vitamin B, you know, carnitine, iron, that kind of thing, which are, it's just a little bit more common. The fixes are really easy and there's even ways to do it with food. It's just something you want to, I guess, keep an eye on a little bit more frequently than maybe normal people would. Milk. Drink also it. Also gets a bad rap. Yeah, Drink we, it or no? Because like in the cafes, we're seeing a massive shift to oat. It's all oat. Soy's dropped off. Like, yeah. What about almond? That used to be popular. It used, yeah, it used to be number two and now it's number three. It's like, I think people found out how resource intensive almond milk is to make. Like the water requirement to make almond milk is insane. I can't remember what it is, but it's like, that's not good. The good thing about milk is there are a lot of A2 creameries that are in existence now. So with dairy, there are two different proteins that show up in dairy. There's A1 and then there's A2. So A1 is associated with a lot of the GI distress that people who are lactose intolerant ex experience. It's considered to be a little bit more inflammatory. So A2 is like a lot of people who are lactose intolerant can have goat milk and goat cheese. That's because goats and sheeps only produce A2 proteins. So now they've, there's a, there's some dairy farms like cow dairy who have, who, who predominantly and exclusively breed cattle who only produce A2. So Fairlife is one of those. There's one that's called the A2 milk company that I've seen in co-op that we get. That's another. I so think if you're somebody who's lactose intolerant, you can still have some milk. Yeah. I think that that dairy is a really good protein source. And the, the issue that I have with people who kind of poo poo dairy is it's as soon as someone eliminates dairy from their diet, there's a like they have to replace that with something else for protein or they become protein deficient. A lot of the backlash against dairy is they've they've correlated some hormonal cancers, specifically in women. There's been an increased prevalence of breast cancer and cervical cancer with that that correlates to dairy consumption. So that's that's where a lot of the concern is. And that's 
clinically valid. You know, a lot of the doctors and researchers are like, yes, this is like, we can't say for sure that this is causing this, but it's something that we want to keep an eye on. So I think the, you know, the A2 dairy is a really good option and it sort of minimizes that risk a little bit more, but I'm not getting rid of dairy anytime soon. I much prefer it to oat milk or nut milk. Is oat milk okay? Is it, is it yeah, I mean, a it good alternative uh, or almond milk or soy? Yeah. Um, especially for stuff like coffees. I mean, it's not as good in espresso, but you know, if that's your cup of tea, go for it. It's not going to get you. I know that there are some, there's like a cashew almond milk combo product that's quite high in protein, but for the most part, nut milks will be a little bit lower in protein. So it's, I wouldn't look for it to be a protein replacement, but a fine alternative nonetheless. Okay. I want to come back to CrossFit. Made it to the CrossFit Games. That means you're both incredibly fit. Were you both full-time athletes at that point? So for me, I qualified back in 2017. The sport was had gained a lot of momentum at that point. It was big enough. It was 2015. Wasn't, oh, sorry, 2015 I qualified. It's different now. It's more competitive now. It was still fairly competitive, but I was training uh five days a five or six days a week. And then I trained like one, one to two sessions per day. So I was probably doing like 12 or 13, I guess. Yeah. 12. Yeah. 10 sessions. I was also in law school at the time. So training wasn't my number one priority. I would train a little bit before school and then usually most evenings and then on the weekends. But yeah, I've always, I've always had something else other. I was never a full-time CrossFit athlete for one year I was, but I was also, it was right after law school, right before my articles, I took a year just to pursue CrossFit. And honestly, I didn't even perform that much better. I think I do better when I've got more things going on and CrossFit and training is more of like an enjoyable like outlet rather than what felt like a full-time job at the time. It's still, it's like, it, it just requires so much training now that if you were to try to remain competitive, it takes away from other things in life. And there's no way that if we were both still trying to pursue getting back to the CrossFit Games, that we'd have the business success that we, we've had. I qualified in 2018, which was after I moved here to Calgary. But I, I guess I started my, my full-time CrossFit training in the second half of 2016. I started CrossFit in 2012 when I was working full-time and just sort of got better and better, trained a little bit more, but always part-time. And kind of set the goal if I could if I could qualify or if I could make it to regionals and come top ten. So that was back when regionals was where you qualified for the games. Now it's a little bit different. Regionals has always been fairly competitive. So I said if I can come top ten in my region, then I'll I'll take a year and a half off and just see what I can do in the sport. So I did that in 2016 while I was still working. Took a sabbatical from my job, trained full time. Didn't make it in 2017 because I had an injury that I was dealing with, probably from overtraining. And then, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do in 2018. That was kind of the time that I was I was going to start back with work. And then, like I said, I moved. I ended up moving here instead. And 2018, I was, was doing some coaching at a gym downtown Calgary. I was coaching nutrition at that time, so it was definitely more part time than it was in 2017 like training wise, but I started with OPT was a training company here in Calgary and just trained a little bit smarter. So less volume and intensity more, I guess I, I was working around that injury that I had had. And just, I think the training environment was really good. You always, I think, you know, someone like us who is we're not going to blow regionals out of the water. You always have to get a little bit lucky with the regionals programming. And I did. And so 2018 regionals went really well. And I qualified that year. 
She actually didn't qualify. She right. was top five qualify. She was sixth. I think I was eight that year. The girl who won ended up getting popped for taking a banned substance. So Meredith got the slot. Yeah, Sweet. which I, she did qualify, but initially she thought she hadn't. And it was like devastating. Yeah. I was almost secretly, but also not so secretly, like relieved that she didn't make it because I was jealous. I would have had been jealous if she had qualified and I didn't. I came around when she did eventually end up getting the spot. Yeah, it was quite the dramatic no turn of CrossFit events. people listening are pulling their hair out. But I, I got to ask, yeah. what, what's, what's each of your favorite CrossFit workout? Oh, gosh, I haven't thought about this in a long time. Like traditional CrossFit workout, I really like Amanda, which is a couplet of squat snatches and ring muscle-ups. That's just kind of always been my my type of workout. Really high skill, relatively short. Longer workout, probably something like Eva, which is just a, a lot of running. I like running. Yeah, I'm one of my favorite classic CrossFit workouts is Helen, and it's three rounds for time of 400-meter run, 21 kettlebell swings, and 12 pull-ups. So it's like a sub-10-minute, just straight burner. And now you're both big into running or you were always big into running? I was doing endurance sports before CrossFit. So I, I had gotten into cycling. I was sort of dabbling in triathlon. I was always a runner. I, I swam in high school. That was my sport. So I was kind of headed down that path and then found CrossFit, you know, switched into that for a little while. So this is kind of just moving back into the endurance space for me anyways. I'm focusing right now more on the half marathon distance. So I ran... I ran the Banff half marathon in one hour and 34 minutes. And so my goal for next year is to run one in sub 90 minutes, which is a pretty big milestone in half marathon land. And then Alex is more of a full, full distance marathoner right now. Yeah. I did the San Francisco marathon back in 2012. And so I recently did Chicago and I did it in 322, 30. So I'm going to register for Boston and see if I can run that in the springtime. That's just like a nice change of pace. Nice to be outside more rather than in the confines of a gym. And it gets us into some new communities, which is good both personally. It's nice to meet people, but also from a business standpoint, we, it's an interesting shift. Like a lot of our followers and our clients are also now getting into running. And I think, you know, I don't think we ha- we're the only people influencing that, but it's, I think it's, you know, partially because of us, but then also we have people coming to us from the, the running communities and the ultra marathon communities, which is pretty special because it just, it broadens the the type of people that we work with, which, you know, it forces us to learn about a different uh, facet of sports nutrition, which is good, you know, but also we meet some people who have no idea what CrossFit is. And that's kind of also refreshing. How do you eat before a big race? So there's a, a carb, I'm sure people have heard of carb loading. If you ever watched The Office, yeah, Michael did it and office, he, yeah. he went for fettuccine Alfredo, which wouldn't be something that I recommend. Maybe just the noodles, but not the, the pot, the sauce, That's such too a much fat. <laughs> so basically like the couple days before leading up, you would just like hammer carbs. And when I'm talking like hammer carbs, like you're increasing your carb load by 40% and then dropping protein and fat because carbs are your prime body's primary um, energy source. So you stock up your glycogen stores. And then by race day, you have like a big breakfast of mainly carbs. So I usually just stick with like a big bowl of oatmeal and then sip on some Gatorade or have some of those like little gummies, very much prioritizing carbs going in. And that you're not just, you can't just walk off the street and do that. It it does take some practice. You have to train your body in a sense. And then there's also some different strategies for intra-workout carb con- consumption. So like during the run, you're you're hitting carbs as well. Absolutely, yeah. Just good, those like little packets or yeah, whatever. yeah. The, the cool thing about endurance training and nutrition is that it's actually really, really well understood. So most of the the sports nutrition research that exists 
has been done on either runners or cyclists because it's way easier to study people like that than it is to study, you know, CrossFitters or, you know, even triathletes. It's quite challenging. So they've established, like, we know kind of what the human body can handle from a carbohydrate standing standpoint, you know, during a race, you know, grams of carbs per hour are pretty well understood. And so you can kind of back calculate how that pans out and where you can get those from. I don't, do, are you familiar with Eluid Kipchoge, the Kenyan who broke two hours? Oh yeah. yeah. yeah I've seen that. Yeah. He kind of, I mean, this, this field of science has been around forever, but he kind of brought a, a new light to it because he, you know, is obviously a public figure. There's been a few documentaries they did a lot when he ran in Vienna to to optimize everything that could possibly be optimized with that run. But they were, from a carbohydrate standpoint, they knew exactly how many carbs they wanted him to have during the race. I think it was around 90 grams per hour. I don't remember exactly. That's pretty challenging from if you if you just know like how many carbs that is. So it can come like from from a you know liquid soy source, gel source, that kind of thing. They stuck mostly to liquid and they would it was crazy. They would have a bike or somebody ride up next to him, he would drink and then they would they would literally pick the bottle up and then go weigh it. So oh, they wow. knew exactly how much he was taking in and you know if they needed to manipulate the delivery or this or that to make sure that he stayed on target with his uh, grams per hour. It's really crazy. He he did that race twice, right? And the first one, he didn't break it. And then the second one, he did. The first attempt was in Monza in Italy on the F1 track. And he was close. He ran like a 201. He was just over it. And so then they... He was stoked. He was like, I failed, but now I know that I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a... The first documentary is incredible. The team reset. And that was the first attempt was run by Nike. And then the second attempt was run by Ineos, I think. And so the the team kind of reset. They started looking for a new like location to run it. And they selected Vienna because of the weather conditions are most optimal. And they had found this sort of out and back route on the main. I don't remember what that location is called, but it's essentially an eight kilometer stretch of road. And then you go around a traffic circle and eight kilometers back. Really boring route from my perspective, but they weren't out there for the scenery, I guess. Yeah. Then he ran it in I don't remember what the the clock time was, 159 something, but yeah. Even in the, so he recently won the Olympic marathon. And even during that, they were talking about his hydration and carb intake. And he was taking up carbs up until I think the last two kilometers. And they basically said like, you know, this is the last checkpoint before he, or aid station that he's going to pass. And you can see that he's still taking in carbs because the body is sensitive and, you know, your nutrition can make or break you. People who are dehydrated, you you see a lot of marathoners, especially at the elite level dropping out, but you, you also see it at the end amateur level or recreational level, people sign up for marathons and they don't make it because, you know, they have cramps and stuff and getting in proper hydration and carb intake is so important. And then we also work with a lot of people who do ultra marathons too. And that's, that's a whole different beast because you're doing like, you know, their training schedule is insane, but it's yeah. The, the endurance sport nutrition is, is it more is, mental? Does it become just all of a sudden more mental than physical? For ultra, or yeah, yeah, the ultras. It's like we we always say the marathon distance is still a test of fitness. The ultra marathon distance is truly a test of endurance, like your ability to simply endure the test. How many kilometers is it? Depends. There are distances that range from, I think like 60 kilometers is considered the first ultra, even though that's still quite short. Then there's 100 kilometers and then there's the 100 mile distance. But ultra is a a totally like- So you're out there for like- over 30 hours. Yeah. Ultra is like the wild west though, because there's, there's new formats that come up every year. They have a, a race up in Maine this year. That's like a last man standing. So it's, it's crazy. It's, um, 
you know, every, every hour for as long as you can, you run four miles and that's, that's the race. And you just go until there's nobody left. And I think the guy who won it ran, ended up running over 300 miles or something crazy like that. It's absurd. So what does their <laughs> carb load look like? They're basically just eating all as, carbs as, all as the time. As much as yeah. they can possibly. I have um, a friend who runs for Team USA and she's kind of considered one of the best trail runners in the U.S., and I asked her once about nutrition and we don't work with her. She's like, it, I mean, obviously you have to carb load, but at some point, like it just, you have to get calories in however you can. Like she's like, I've eaten potato chips out there. Like you just, you have to go for, you can't do gels 20 hours. You have to get some real food going. So it's just a matter of where does that go? How well do you tolerate, tolerate it? And that, that truly becomes very person dependent at that point. What is cramping when you're, when you're running? And you have like a cramp in your stomach. Is that lack of nutrients or is that just something else? It kind of depends like where on the body it is. So usually if it's in your, like a lot of people get those rib cramps, that's a, that's usually carbs. That's a carbohydrate issue. You know, regular old muscle cramps that happen in your legs, hamstrings, that's more likely to be a hydration, like an electrolyte imbalance. So either you're over consuming salt or you're more likely under consuming salt. And then there's, there's a different type of cramp that's 100% neuromuscular, which is, which means there's really nothing you can do about it nutritionally. That's more of a just muscle activation deficiency. I think that there's, what's the difference between a cramp and a stitch? A stitch is like in your side. And I think that has less to do with your nutrition. Mm -hmm. More your breathing mechanics. Yeah. yeah. And like just, yeah, overdoing it. And I, I actually don't know what the, what the difference is with that sort of thing. So if you go back to September 2018 and you have one piece of advice for each other at the very start of this, what would it be? I would say probably post on Instagram every day. It took us long. It took us too long to start doing that. When I think about what made the biggest change for us, and this is just because we're we're an online company, we're remote. Most people see us through Instagram and that's always been the case. It took us a year and a half to get into a, a, a posting habit where we just, it's something that we do every single day. And I think we should have done that initially. And then for you, advice for you, don't take things so personally. Yeah. Working with people is difficult. And no matter who you are, you're not going to please everybody as hard as you could possibly try. Like sometimes it's a clash of personalities. Sometimes you just, you know, wires get crossed on expectations. So I, I used to just be devastated anytime a client, you know, canceled their membership. But then you you just, you realize, you know, there's, there's many different reasons for it. You know, hopefully you've helped somebody in some respect and you just you learn from it and move forward and try to apply what you've learned to the next person. But yeah, it's difficult as a business. You want everyone to be happy with the product that you're, you're selling. And it's, it's tough. What does rest look like for each of you? We love watching TV. Like it, <laughs> we're not like TV addicts by any means. We don't like binge watch, but at the end of the night. So yeah, our new house has like a, an upper living area. And so it's become so symbolic. Like we're usually, we're downstairs in the office kind of all day. And then, you know, we'll go into the gym and work out or whatever. But there's, there's something really symbolic about at the end of the day, you go upstairs and you sit on like the couch that's upstairs in the living room and you watch, you know, your, your one hour or 90 minutes of TV before bed. It's just like, okay, the day's like the day is done mentally. I'm like, I'm offline. And that's just become kind of a ritual for us. What's the show? Right now we're watching Billions. Yellowstone come, comes back on Sunday, so we'll watch that one. If you ever want to feel poor, watch Billions. <laughs> okay, great. It's like, it's, yeah, the way I that- I feel poor already, Like, so. I'm like, we're doing okay, and then I watch Billions, and I'm like, well- Well, then you remember, okay. like, there are actually hedge fund man fund managers in the world who, like, that's their life. Like, like a $100,000 in this show is just, like, pennies. Yeah. Literally, that's how they talk about money, and you're just like, okay, hey, I gotta get a grip here. <laughs> 
Yeah. Losing we, perspective. We're big Survivor fans too. So okay. Yeah. yeah. That one. Sweet. How do you two balance your work, you're in a relationship, you're growing the business. How do you balance it all? Um, we don't. Yeah. Sometimes we fail massively at that. You, we spend kind of like all day, every day together. And so sometimes the, the boundaries get a little bit blurred. You realize that you've been, you've spent literally an entire week with your work partner and not your partner partner. So we like the, you know, the evening time is our time. We try to, to set aside time to do things that we enjoy, mountain biking, skiing, things that force us to disconnect a little bit from work. We're both really active. And so I think we connect over activity and we always have. So kind of going back to that and not through, like we go down and we work out in our gym every day, but that's not it. It's connecting through activity that's outside and, you know, away from our house. We try to make sure that we do that once a week. Is work-life balance a thing or no? At first, it was very much not a thing. Like as a small business owner, and this is probably like something that you can relate to is your, the amount of time that you invest into your business and work is almost directly correlated with like, or at least the, the potential for growth. So it's really hard to put your computer away when you know that there's more that you could have done. And so at nighttime, when we're just watching TV, it's kind of like, well, what if I just, you know, respond to this email now or like, you know, do some reading for a post tomorrow. It's, it's really hard to disconnect from that at, at the same time. And I think we realized this during COVID when we didn't really have a life outside of our home the lines were very much blurred and work dominated. And it, it almost got to the point where we were, the, the pressure in our household was so intense because we never took time away from work. And then we had, a, there was a lot of communication that happened that kind of forced us to be like, okay, hey, look, like we need to figure out a way to like not be working all the time. And that was kind of the turning point. And then obviously when things started opening up again, it allowed us to, to actively like get away from work in a, in a literal sense. I, I feel like that's so important the amount of effort you put in is is that opportunity to grow the business. And it seems like at any moment you should be doing, I could be doing more, I should be doing more. Yeah. And it's very exciting at one point, but it's also very, very draining. And it's incredibly difficult to like turn it off and just like rest. Like I always ask people like, how do you, how do you recharge so you can go in the next day at a hundred percent? Cause I know for a long time I came into work at 60, 70% because was you know seven to seven or seven till nine every day and just don't get results like that and you don't even see that that's happening really until maybe someone else points it out or things really come to a head it's like yeah you can you can read you can work all the time but the way that you show up for your business and your employees when it's time to show up is is not as good as it could be if you actually took time to reset and recharge and just like take your eyes off of what you're doing for 10 minutes what does each of your morning routines look like Mine starts after Alex gets up. That's like a, a thing that I, she hates it. I always get up before Meredith. Yeah. Even if it's like, even if it's 30 seconds, <laughs> I don't know why that's a thing. I'm like, I if I stayed in bed until like 1 PM, Meredith would stay in bed till 1 PM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just like, that's a thing, but I, I get up shortly after Alex. Usually I have just immediately like a, a coffee and a stroop waffle. And that's really the first, like the only thing I eat for a an hour, hour and a half. Usually we get right to work on our client facing days. We work with a number of Europeans and a lot of people on the East coast. So it's kind of beneficial for us to start our day early. Plus that allows us to have the kind of the afternoon free if we want it. So usually it's, it's client facing for a couple of hours. We'll do, I usually write our, our post for the day. First thing in the morning, I, I write better in the morning than I do in the evenings. So that's like something that I do and then a couple, you know, an hour, hour and a half of work and then stop for a breakfast break. Yeah. It's usually right away for us right into it. Yeah. I mean, Wednesdays, Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays 
are when we speak to our clients. So those days are fairly much like a, I mean, we start early like six or 6.30 and then work for eight or 10 hours. So it's, it's like a standard work day. And then the Tuesdays and Thursdays are more flexible. So we work out a little bit more on those days and then do some of the, you know, more miscellaneous business items like you know, emails, administrative tasks, invoicing, any sort of marketing stuff, meetings with people that happens on a Tuesday, Thursday. And then what's really helped us create like work-life balance is weekends are very much like weekends. So we try to kind of like limit any client contact and sort of like big projects on the weekends because that was really starting to drain the tank a little bit. Very, they're very structured days, which I find helpful. So where can uh, listeners find you guys online? We're most active on Instagram. So you can find Tactic is on Instagram at Tactic Nutrition. We're both personally active on Instagram. So I'm at Meredith underscore root. Alex is at AA Parker one. And then we're online at tacticmethod.com. And so the biggest thing that we're, we're working on right now is we're actually, sh we're moving our website platform over to, we're on a WordPress site. We're moving to Shopify just for ease of e-commerce and kind of to clean things up a little bit. And we're going through a bit of a, a rebrand. So we're hopeful that the rebrand and the refresh website is up before the holidays. And that's something we're really, really excited about. Okay. Thanks team. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was great. Hey friends. Thanks for listening to Buy the Drip. If you could please subscribe, rate, and give us a comment. That'd mean the world to us. Till next time.